There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode 26 of the Shine On podcast, I'm Evan Shine. I'm absolutely buzzing about today's episode. We have a great document put together by the one and only producer Dave. Well, with, with help from the star of the show, Counselor Evan Shine, but... I'll take a small amount of credit for it, sure. Dave, take more than a small amount of credit. <laughs> and I have to tell you, we have a fantastic show. Dr. Helen Fisher is going to join us on today's episode. She is an author, a biological anthropologist, a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, and the chief science advisor to the dating website, Match.com. We're going to talk to Dr. Fisher about the science behind finding love and the evolution of sex, dating, and relationships. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce and the science behind why people cheat and why people are chemically drawn to some people rather than others. We're also going to talk about the impact of mental health on sex, love, and our relationships. Dating in today's world. Is this a dating world filled with swipes and likes and winks that Dr. Fisher could have predicted when she wrote her first book, Anatomy of Love, in the early 90s? This episode will change the way you think about love and marriage. My interview with Dr. Helen Fisher is coming up on the other side of this week's docket. This is an interview that you will not want to miss. Evan, as you mentioned, we have a special version of the docket today. It's a musical version of the docket. Are you ready, sir? Dave, let's do it. All right. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Evan, you noticed that Adele, our favorite British singer, came out with a new album, much much hyped album, including a, a song that has to do with divorce. It's called Easy On Me. And for our listening public here, we're going to play a little bit of the song and then we'll have the expert analyze. So here's, uh, here's a little bit of Easy On Me from Adele. She can sing, huh? <laughs> really she, she can sing, and I'll tell you what, you can dance, and we might have to make this podcast a video podcast <laughs> so all the listeners can see producer Dave's dance moves. <laughs> I don't know if this is such a great dance song. but So the reason we're talking about it is, perhaps it's obvious, this is a song about divorce. It's a song Adele wrote with her son in mind. Some of the lyrics, there ain't no gold in this river, that I've been washing my hands forever, etc. Go easy on me, baby. I was still a child. I didn't get a chance to feel the world around me. She's exploring the moment she found the courage to leave her marriage, or at least the moment when she realized it was over. And in parts, you can hear her talking directly to her nine-year-old son, Angelo, 
who she's dedicated to the album to, and she has a lot of guilt about the divorce and what it did to the kids. So your thoughts on this uh, this new tune? Dave, my first thought is what an absolutely brilliant song from Adele. And we've talked about Adele before and her relationship and divorce with ex Simon Konecki. Easy on me, Adele's new single, beautifully written, and her new divorce album titled 30. It's getting rave reviews, as you just heard from the clip. I mean, just absolutely incredible stuff. Adele's great. It's a song not about love, but it's one where Adele talks to her son, asks for forgiveness. And as she said in interviews, she uses her music and passion to explain her divorce to her son. And look, people can debate all they want. And I've seen it. I've heard it. Is this the right way or not to explain to a child about divorce and the reasons that their parents were separating? But to me, there's no debate. This is what Adele chose to do in a form and in a way that she's comfortable with. And that's everything. It's everything in the world. And she did it her way. She did it in a way that she was comfortable through her music, through her passion. Yeah, and I I agree. And it's there's a lot of sadness in it, but there's also sort of hope in it, which is why I I like the song and probably better than a song that we probably time won't permit us to get it to today. But another divorce song Pink has called Family Portrait. And that one is just it's written from the position of her as a child and her parents divorcing. That one's just flat out heartbreaking and just everything's negative in the song. It's a good song, but Adele, there's you can just hear the hope in her voice. So I think that's nice. Hey, Dave, you can hear um, yeah. the hope in her voice, yeah. but you music for so many people, it's a way to connect. It's a way to understand. It's an outlet. It's an escape. And in many ways, I feel I feel Dale got this 100% right. Like I said, the way she wrote this song, the lyrics, the words to her son, mm. my hat's off to her. She yeah. did it well. Yeah. Next one we're going to look at will be familiar to your new New York audience, Evan. It's from none other than Billy Joel a song from 1977. Many of you will recognize it. There's actually, strangely, a new music video that just came out for this song, even though it's that old. Let's listen to a little bit of Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. Brenda and Eddie were the popular steadies and the king and the queen of the farm. Riding around with the car top down and the radio on. Nobody looked any finer Always more of a hit At the Parkway Diner We never knew We could want more than that Out of life Sure, the Bender and Eddie Would always know how to survive Oh, oh, oh Well, fans of the song know That things start out very well For Brenda and Eddie And are still going strong By the summer of 75, summer of 75. But By the time the summer of 75 ends so does their marriage, apparently. They file, <laughs> as, as, the, as the lyrics indicate, they got a divorce as a matter of course, and they just couldn't count on the tears. And so just kind of a, I, I tried to look into this, Evan. Apparently there isn't, there isn't an actual Brenda and Eddie, but Billy Joel had these memories of these friends of his in high school that seemingly had everything so perfect and they're on their way to this idyllic future. And then they, he'd see them years later and they, they looked like, they looked like hell. And so 
It's kind of, I mean, it's a fun song, but it's, it's, there is a sort of sad notes in there about Brendan. Nettie, your thoughts. Yeah, my first thought is how do you wait until episode 26 for Billy Joe to make an appearance on the podcast? I, I can listen to his music all day. You and me both. And I'm not even a New York guy, but he's always been one of my favorites. Seen him many well, times. I'll tell you what, his, his concert was the last concert I went to in person at Madison Square Garden pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen him at MSG and I plan to return, I, I hope. But yes, it's, he's great in concert. He is an American treasure. What What is your favorite Billy Joel song? This one is up there. I guess I like a lot of stuff off The Stranger. I don't know. It, it changes. I think right now it might be moving out. I'm kind of into moving out off the same album, The Stranger. How about you? Moving out's good. Goodbye to Hollywood. Captain Jack. Yeah. My daughter can't get enough of Uptown Girl. So, you know. <laughs> There's a little something for everyone. Yeah, I don't care for Uptown Girl, but I know why people do. It's cool. The lyrics in the song that you just played, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, phenomenal lyrics. Mm. Listen to them. There's a line in the song that says they started to fight when the money got tight and they just didn't count them the tears. And to me, this highlights the importance of the money conversation during marriage, the impact that money has on our lives. Money, as we've talked about with Catherine Sanderson in episodes prior about the happiness and the pursuit of and the search of happiness and, and whether money equates to that. Money affects us in many ways. There's another line in the song. It's always the same in the end. No matter the highs and lows, it brought them to the same place. Divorce is really a last resort for people. And we've talked about the importance of therapy. And you hear it in the song, you hear it in the lyrics, that no matter the highs, no matter the lows, no matter how much they tried, it brought them back to the very same place. Mm. Interesting you say that because, had you seen this music video before, Evan? I've not. No, no. Yeah. And so I just took a look at it today for the first time. It's, it's animated. Very well done. Check it out on YouTube. Fans will know that the, both the beginning and the end of the song has a passage about bottle of red, bottle of white. There's, there's the Italian restaurant th- description there. At the end of the video, it appears as though Brenda and Eddie are sharing uh, a bottle of wine at the restaurant. But the way I interpret it was not, they're not together, but they're reuniting. And so there's a little bit of tone in this as... It was the end of their marriage, but it wasn't the end of their lives. We, somehow we knew they would both find a way to get by, which is being a divorced guy myself. I appreciate that. And Billy's a divorced guy himself, too. A couple, he is. couple, couple and, times and song, over. Yep. He is. And the song talks about that. It yep. talks about the continued relationship. And look, it doesn't have to be as partners or husband and wife. It could be a relationship that just takes a different form. Right. Well, we'll switch gears. And at first blush, this song might not sound like any kind of poignant commentary on divorce, but there's something in here. From 1983, this is Journey in Separate Ways.
song's probably best known for its unintentionally hilarious music video. You can look that up, folks. <laughs> but the song was written by Steve Perry about multiple members of the band who were going through breakups at the time, and they wanted to take something positive out of it. And so the theme of the song is find happiness even though we've gone our separate ways. Your thoughts? Yeah, Dave, no, my, my thoughts are exactly what you just said. Look, apparently Jonathan Cain, the Journey keyboardist, and the lead vocalist Steve Perry, they were going through divorce uh, together. They were on tour, going through everything at the same time. And it apparently was an incredibly stressful time for them. And reports and quotes from both of them suggest that this was their way of coping with the divorce, being away from their families, being on tour while all this was happening. But what's interesting to me is when you listen to songs and you watch TV shows and we've had other media dockets, how you think about the lyrics, how you think about particular scenes, whether it's from past episodes, the affair or the marriage story, the movie, or even listening to the Billy Joel song that we just did or the Journey song, how you think about things and you think to yourself that whether it's an actor or a musician, Adele, how they're processing things in their own life at the same time as they're creating works of art, whether it's TV, on the screen, or through music. Yeah, and I I imagine you've seen this. I mean, I know you've represented some high-profile people, but even the low-profile people, they may find their own, they might not write a song, but they may, hopefully they find their own outlet for, you know, expressing their emotions in a way to get through to the other side. They do. I mean, we've talked about it with Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, the divorce doctor. People find their outlet. People find something to pursue. They find their own way and their own path, and they turn what is a very difficult time into something happy and something different. Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, J-Swipe. It seems that in our current dating climate, there is an app out there for anyone to find that special someone. Prior to the plethora of platforms we now have to choose from, we must not forget the original dating site, Match.com, which in many ways revolutionized the dating world. Our featured guest this week on the Shine On podcast is Dr. Helen Fisher. Dr. Fisher was invited to Match.com in 2005 to discover the biological foundation of personality as a biological anthropologist and senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute She looks at the science behind love, dating, relationships, marriage, and the dating trends in the digital age. Dr. Fisher holds the title of Chief Science Advisor for Match.com. She's the author of six books and was chosen in 2015 by Business Insider as one of the 15 most amazing women in science. She regularly appears on national and international TV, radio, print, and podcast. Dr. Fisher, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate the time. How are you? I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you very much. Helen, you've written multiple books about the evolution of sex, dating, and relationships. And dating is something that's on everyone's mind as we now get on the other side of the pandemic and as we look ahead to 2022. What are you seeing in terms of the dating trends and the search for love, given the world we're living in and the times right now? Well, I know this sounds absolutely crazy, but I'm extremely optimistic. (laughs) What we're really seeing is the extension of what I call slow love. And 50 years ago, people married, men and women married in their very early 20s. Now they're married in their very late 20s or even early 30s. So what we're really seeing is an extension of what I call 
example, the pre-commitment level of, of dating. So what the young are doing these days is, and people, everybody else too, they're trying people out. They're trying to figure out who they are. They're looking at what they want. They're re- realizing what they don't want. They're really focused now. They're very focused on putting their financial life in order, getting their career in order, and in making a really solid partnership. It's amazing. During this pandemic, it's only slowed down the process of, of courtship even more. I mean, I mean, when we asked, and by the way, I am chief science advisor to Match. I have been for 16 years. And we do, and every year for the last 11 years, we've done what I call, it's called the Singles in America study. And every year we poll a little over 5,000 Americans. We do not poll the Match members. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. Census. And when we ask people during this pandemic, how did their courtship patterns change? They say they're having more meaningful relationships. They're having more self-disclosure. They're meeting on video dating before they go out in person. So sex is off the table on a video date. Uh, Money's off the table. You don't have to decide where to go, how much money to spend. They're less interested in what somebody looks like, and they are profoundly interested now in somebody who's got a stable money stabilized and they've got a full-time job so we're just seeing the continuation of this slow love and it's just getting slower single particularly millennials man i am crazy about millennials i mean i'm calling them the new victorians i mean they're square even that term they they invented that term dtr define the relationship so i asked on this singles in america study well how long is it should you go out with somebody before you ask where we headed. And the average answer was four months. Now, I'm a baby boomer. I wouldn't have dreamt in four months of asking somebody where we're headed. (laughs) Now, maybe that's partially me, but I think it's also my generation. So anyway, I'm positive about them. They're a very dedicated, serious group of people, the young today. I love the optimism. I love the positivity. And I I love your phrase, slow love. But Helen, when I ask you to think back to the time in the early 90s, when you wrote your book, Anatomy of Love, and you think back to the world at that point in the dating culture and the trends, could have you ever predicted the dating world, the times that we're living in with the apps and the websites? Was this something that you could have anticipated when you first wrote that book in the early 90s? Never. But I'm telling you, these dating sites are, they've got some some real I mean, the great advantages of them is that you can meet people at any age. I mean, one of the fastest growing sites is called Our Time, and it's for people over 50. And because uh, we're living a long time and divorce rates are still continuing, they're not rising, I don't think, but I want to ask you about that. But they're high. I mean, you see different data on it, but between 43 and 46 percent of of people will divorce. That's what they say. I'd like to know what you think about that. But anyway, the bottom line is, People of any age can now find people. What's really interesting to me is that the young are really interested in these dating apps. In college, you'd think you you meet a million boys in college and a million <laughs> girls. I mean, why do you bother? But what they say is they like to get a, girls and men that want to get together by themselves someplace, have a pile of drinks, get on these dating sites and meet people there, as opposed to going out to some woodsy and that's an old-fashioned term, and drinking 10 beers and having sex with the guy standing next to you. They're really (laughs) finding this to be useful. Now, there are disadvantages to it, but it is 
a remarkably useful trend. And one more thing about that. There was an article out of the University of Chicago that said that if you meet somebody on the internet, as opposed to off the internet, not necessarily match, but anywhere on the internet, as opposed to off the internet, you are less likely to divorce. And I thought, well, what difference would it make when you meet somebody? I mean, you could meet them in a museum on a train. I mean, at a party, what, what difference would it make? So I did my own study with Match of people who dated on the internet versus off the internet. And they found that those people who dated on the internet were more likely to be fully employed, more likely uh, uh, to have higher education, and more interested in a long-term uh, committed partnership. So as we see more and more people turn to the internet, we're going to find perhaps more stable partnerships. So that fascinates me, that study and looking at how people met. And you mentioned over the 10 beers in person many, many, many years ago and the impact of technology today. And when I think about millennials, technology and the way we meet people, it's really the way of life. And then I think of people who were in their 60s and 70s after going through, let's say, divorce at a later point in life. And I would think technology is something that's fearful. For many people who are of an older generation, what is the impact of technology, both on the millennial side, as you were talking about, but then also on the older generation, people who, and you hear about the booming grade divorce? Yeah, it's interesting that, well, I mean, all of our data at, at Match, all the singles in America data on the national, national singles shows that, of course, millennials and Gen Z are the very first to pick up new technology. I mean, they're not scared of pushing the wrong buttons. They'll just push any goddamn button. And I certainly, you, you certainly see people, older people, certainly, I mean, just in these uh, programs on television saying, I don't know how to begin. I don't know what to do. But at least they're thinking about it. And one of the things that we found is the older you get, the less and less likely you are interested in remarrying or marrying at all. Really, after you've gotten through your reproductive years, let's say age 40, people are less and less inclined to wed. They get, they're just quite, just, just as picky. One of my favorite questions, every year I do about 200 questions. We put them on this uh, Singles in America study. We get the answers. And one of my favorite things about older people was, one of the questions was, would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who had everything you were looking for in a partner, but you were not in love with them? Other question. Would you make a long-term commitment to somebody who had everything you were looking for in a partner, but you did not find them sexually attractive? The least likely to compromise are people, older people, people over, the least likely to get into a relationship without sex or romance is older people. It's the young that need to compromise. It's the young that need to find somebody to have healthy babies and send their DNA on into tomorrow. And so the young and particularly men, more than women, are really willing to compromise. In fact, I've got, I, had a, I have a wonderful little cousin, and he once said to me, said, Helen, my wife, she wasn't the best I ever had in bed, and, but she's wonderful to our daughter. She's very supportive of me and my career, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the young that have to compromise, and it's the old that actually are having a pretty good time. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe in many ways that helps. Of course, I mean, nobody gets out of love a lot. Nobody. <laughs> but, but maybe in many ways that helps explain what we're seeing in terms of the great divorce. And obviously people are living much longer today than in years past. And that story is, is absolutely fascinating in terms of whether it's sex, whether it's love, whether it's the connection. Are people looking 
for different things and qualities in a partner today in terms of the younger generation? Yes. I think the bad boy is out. I think the bad girl is out. I think that they are very dedicated, serious. When every single year for the last 11 years in this Singles in America study, we have this one question, number six, it's a nightmare mathematically for me, but the bottom line is, yeah, no, it ruins my Christmas. But anyway, the bottom line is, we say, what's most important to you in a partnership? What are you really looking for? And then I got a list of about 30 things and you can check them all. And something like over 95% of people at every age that these are the top five things every single year. The first, number one is somebody who respects me. Then going down the line, that uh, somebody who I can trust and confide in. Somebody who makes me laugh. Laughter is very important in a relationship. Somebody who makes enough time for me. And somebody who I find physically attractive. These are the main things. We're looking for a companion. When I ask, would you marry for money? About 14%, uh, this was years, a few years ago, but probably the same, about 14% said yes, they would. That's 86% of people. We're looking for a companion these days. And what's interesting that I had forgotten to tell you about, I think that we're going to see more stable marriages, A, because we're meeting on the internet, but I've looked at 80 societies through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations, and the later, the longer you court and the later you marry, the more likely you are to stay together. I've got data from 1947 to 2011. And that's what we're seeing today. Longer courtship, later marriage. Now, you're in a business where you see a lot of people who are divorced. So sure. <laughs> I and, imagine and, that you see the other side of this, which I find very interesting. I do. And, and, and look, let's talk marriage and let's talk divorce because what fascinates me, and you mentioned your studies and your research spanning 50, 60 years, marriage to me, it's one of those things, love and marriage, that people can't seem to get right. The divorce rates, whether it's 40%, 45%, at times it hovers right around the 50% mark, yet people get married over and over and over again. And yet when people get married, nobody thinks that their marriage is going to end in divorce. When people say, I do, you're the love of my life, no one thinks that five years, 10 years later, you're going to be sitting across from me in my office. So is defining a successful marriage as until death do us part, is that an unfair and unrealistic expectation to have and a label to place on it in today's world? I think it's a really nice way to think of it. I mean, you're going to put property together. You're going sure. to raise babies together. You're going to build extended families together. And I think it's a great way to think of it. On the other hand, in my book, Anatomy of Love, and by the way, there's a second edition. I've really rewritten a lot of that, just with more data, and it came out in 2016. But anyway, the bottom line is, I looked at divorce in, I guess, 80 societies. And as it turns out, if you're going to divorce, you tend to divorce during around the fourth year of marriage. Now, I got it, this data for 80 societies, for hunter-gatherers, for horticulturalists, for pastoralists, for industrial societies, et cetera, about four years. And it began to occur to me millions of years ago when our ancestors were being forced down out of the trees, trees were disappearing, uh, they began to need a partnership to rear their young. But I began to realize, oh, my goodness, it takes uh, a man and a woman about four years to raise a baby through infancy. 
And once the baby can join a play group, a multi-age play group, it's age five or six, and, and it can be cared for now by a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old and aunts and uncles and cousins, the pair bond can break up. So I do think that the human animal has a predisposition for what I call serial monogamy, a series of partnerships along with birthing babies. And when you think about it, and I'm certainly not advocating it because of the horrible messes when people divorce, as you really know, but the bottom line is for millions of years, if you had children with more than one partner, you're creating more genetic variety in your DNA. And so in, t- in bad times, the one with the better eyesight may live. In other kinds of times, the guy that can hit that buffalo on the head with a rock is going to live. Another time, a good person who is a consensus builder will live, et cetera, et cetera. So we evolved this tremendous drive to fall in love, form a partnership, raise our DNA together, and also a restlessness and long relationship. So when you ask me a question like, is it realistic till death do us part? For some people, it's quite easy. They manage to do it very easily. Other people really struggle with it. I'm not in the should business uh, to sell telling what people to do. I really would like uh, to see divorce made a little bit easier only because it's so financially debilitating. I mean, for millions of years, if you divorced, you, you took your bow and arrow or your digging stick and you you left one little group and walked to another. So, And the child belonged to a particular clan. I mean, nobody argued over who own the child. So what we have is this ancient predisposition for restlessness and long relationships in a modern world we have, where we have an enormous amount of property and, 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 and moral beliefs. So it is, it's difficult. And I think every one of us has to deal with the tremendous drive to love and be in a partnership and also a sort of a drive for autonomy. We all work this one out differently. And you see the problems. How many people want a a prenup? My last data from Singles in America said that about 36% of singles do expect to get a prenup for when they marry. What What is your data? I have to tell you, Ellen, I am seeing more and more people want prenuptial agreements. And the stigma that used to be attached to divorce and also prenups. And look, prenuptial conversations, there's nothing romantic, there's nothing sexy about that conversation. I'm seeing more and more people come to the table, be open, be transparent, recognize the benefit to having a prenuptial agreement in place. And look, as you said, people are getting married a bit later in life. The courtship is is going on a bit longer. And so I wonder if that is one of the reasons that I'm seeing it more, but it's very, very much something that's commonplace in my practice. And each and every year that goes by, I'm seeing more couples not only enter prenuptial agreements, but recognize the benefits of it. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, we have so much property these days and and it's expensive property. I mean, even if you're poor, you've got things that are a bicycle and a TV set and various things that you don't want to split in half and et cetera, particularly children and pets and everything. So I'm, I'm not surprised at all that you're seeing that. And, uh, but I do think the divorce is going to be relatively stable because we're marrying so much later. And and the other thing is that one of the reasons people enter prenuptial agreements, and you touched on divorce and litigation, and really just the financial devastation that can result. One of the benefits that people are now realizing of entering into a prenuptial agreement is that you can resolve many of the terms of your divorce in the agreement. So you don't have to fight over who gets what house or who gets what 
expensive New York City apartment or who gets the stock options. You can come to an agreement in advance, which saves so much heartache, so much emotional and financial devastation years down the road if something happens and the relationship ends. Yeah. That's interesting because you, you probably know, I don't know, but I, I'm probably most well known for putting people in a brain scanner who are madly in love, rejected in love and in love long-term and, and looking at the brain circuitry for romantic love and feelings of deep attachment. And we weren't going to put people in long-term marriages into the brain scanner because everybody will tell you that, that after a while you get bored, you get this and that. And, but people kept coming into the lab and saying, I'm still in love with her. And it's 21 years or I'm still in love with them. And it's 19 years. So we decided we put older people, all married, most with adult children into the brain scanner to see whether they are still in love, not just loving, but in love. And sure enough, we found activity in the basic brain pathways associated with feelings of intense romantic love. So I can understand why people will say as they walk down the aisle, I'm doing this forever. It's possible. It's possible to remain, but you got to pick the right person. And I think that that's what the young are doing. They're being more and more careful, spending more and more time at it. So let's talk about picking the right person. And I know you've created the personality test, the anatomy of love. It's been taken over, taken by over 15 million people in over 40 countries. Tell us, what do our personalities suggest about who we love and how we search for somebody? Yeah. Well, how you search is going to vary so much depending on what culture you're in and, and how old you are, et cetera, et cetera. But what scientists do know about who we choose is we do around the world tend to pick somebody from the, the same ethnic and socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence and good looks and education, same religious and social values and and same economic and reproductive goals. So right off the bat, that that tends to be the norm. Although we are seeing more interracial marriages and marriages between rich and poor and marriages between older and younger. But bottom line is, on average, we tend to people who have similar backgrounds, similar education, et cetera. But, I begin, but you know, you can walk into a room and everybody's from your background and level of education and good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. Could their basic biology pull you naturally towards one person rather than another. So Evan, stop me because I, I want to see if I can make this a little brief. So what I did is I looked in the medical literature, last 40 years of it, looking for any trait at all linked with any biological system. And I found four systems in the brain, each one of them linked with a constellation of personality traits, the dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen systems. And a lot of other systems in the brain, but they just keep the eyes blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with personality traits at all. So these four are. So I made this questionnaire that you referred to, as you say, that now we've been taken by over 15 million people in 40 countries. And, and I watched who's naturally drawn to whom. And as it turns out, people who are very expressive of the traits in the dopamine system go for people like themselves. They're curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic people. They want somebody like themselves. People who are very expressive of the serotonin system tend to be traditional, conventional, follow the rules, respect authority, like details, tend to be religious. Mike Pence is a good example. Mitt Romney is a good example. They tend to also be drawn to people like themselves. 
In those two cases, similarity attracts. In the other two cases, opposites attract. High testosterone goes for high estrogen and vice versa. So somebody who's very high testosterone, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, good at things like math or engineering or computers, is drawn to the high estrogen kind of person. Somebody who's a good verbal skills, people's skills, compassionate, empathetic. And I think actually the Clintons are a good example of that. She, I think, is the high testosterone. And he, I think, is the more high estrogen. I mean, Bill Clinton, the whole world knows he can't stop talking. Worried that he prides daughters a wedding, feels everybody's pain, et cetera, where she's more tough-minded. So anyway, the bottom line is we're all a combination of all of them, but we have personalities. And we're drawn to certain kinds of people for not only cultural reasons, but biological ones. And Helen, you mentioned the Clintons, you mentioned Mike Pence, but Romney, fantastic examples. How does knowing our brain system, the personality, really at the beginning, before you enter into a relationship, marriage, how does that help us live happier, healthier lives and be in better relationships? Evan, you're a good, smart guy. Nobody's ever asked it quite like that. And it's a, it's a fabulous question. I'll just give you an example of myself. So I'm in my 70s and I got married last year. Uh, and I've been, I've had happy long-term partnerships, but this time I got married. Anyway, the bottom line, oh, thank you. Uh, this time, uh, anyway, so we were walking to go to the movies several years ago. We, we hadn't even begun to kiss and hug. And I said to him, I said, do you have any water in your backpack? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, oh, great. We can drink it in the movie house. And he said, no, we can't. You got to against the rules you gotta buy food and and water at the concession stand well never dawned on me (laughs) i'm very high (laughs) i don't follow the rules unless they make sense to me this one didn't and it never dawned on me he's a rule follower more than i am and well the beauty of that is that i don't need him to go to a psychiatrist to wonder why he has to buy water at the concession stand it's who he is and because of that it's a beautiful workaround and what's nice about it is i i think he's going to be faithful to me because he follows the rules now he also likes me but which of course helps at the end of the day and that's a fascinating story and if it makes you feel any better i don't know why anyone has to buy water or popcorn at the concession stands either No, I didn't figure you were high serotonin because I don't think you'd be doing this podcast and doing it so well and dealing with people. I mean, one thing that I heard, I ask you this question. I once read this a long time ago, and it was a guy who was, I guess, a federal judge. And it was some kind of judge or something. Anyway, the bottom line is all kinds of real felons, gun-toting killers would come into his chambers. But he said the very worst, and he had a panic button put underneath his desk, and the very worst people walking in there, most violent were people coming in looking for a divorce. I mean, somebody like you really probably has to deal with personality. But back to that other thing, we have gaps in who we are. I mean, some people are much higher in testosterone, they're much higher in serotonin, they're much higher in dopamine, I mean, than others. And they're going to see the world slightly differently. And you don't really have to go through 10 years of lying on a couch talking about your infancy. You could realize this is who you are. Let's do a workaround. Helen, I want to shift gears and talk about a topic that I found fascinating. And it's a study that I know you've done and, and part of your research, really the study 
between mental health and antidepressants and the impact on sex and love and relationships, which is an incredibly important topic, especially during the pandemic, where it's been such a difficult time for so many people, where whether it's been loss or transition or health issues, and people are going through an incredible amount of difficulty and people are being prescribed medication for whatever the reason may be, job loss, loss of a loved one, isolation, loneliness. What is the impact of mental health on relationships and intimacy? Yeah, it's so interesting here. I've just did a study on this and I haven't yet uh, analyzed the data. I'm really eager to do that. But when you take these, as first of all, there's people who need them. There's definitely people that need them. But there's an awful lot of people who stay on them after they don't need them. And the one that concerns me most is these SSRIs, everything from Lexapro, Prozac, Paxil, the older ones, newer ones. There's a lot of people who just stay on these pills and they drive up the serotonin system in the brain. You can look in any medical journal and you'll find that. And that's what calms you down. And that's good as long as you still need it. But if you stay on it, you're driving up the serotonin system every single day. And the serotonin has a negative correlation with the dopamine system. So as you're driving up serotonin, you're driving down the dopamine system. And the dopamine system is the main system for feelings of romantic love. And also, as you drive up the serotonin, you're dampening sex drive and sexual performance. So you are crippling your ability to fall in love with somebody new and you're jeopardizing, let's say not crippling, but jeopardizing your ability to fall in love and you are jeopardizing your your interest in sex and your ability to perform in bed. And so, I mean, you got to be able to realize that. I mean, I'm constantly getting stories almost once a week uh, from somebody who says to me, yeah, I was doing poorly in school. They gave me this SSRI. I was in the middle of a beautiful relationship with my girlfriend for two years. We'd lived together. And I came home and I just didn't feel anything for her at all. And I couldn't perform in bed. I had no interest in it. And I moved out. And then finally, I got off these pills. And I realized that that's what was dampening it. And one guy, he writes and he says, I gathered all the roses I could get in my arms, went back to her house, knocked on the door and said, will you take me back? So, I mean, I think as long as you realize the downside of these drugs, and there's some people who say, well, I don't care. I never want to have another relationship and I'm not interested in sex. Well, far out, take it for the rest of your life. But they dull the emotions. That's why people take them. They dull the emotions. They dull this basic drive for romance and sex. And in the long run, good, solid relationships really give you a long life and better health. Good partnerships. There's a new new study that came out about three months ago that said that uh, actually a good partnership slows down the the aging process. And we do know that people in long-term happy partnerships live five to 10 years longer And people in long-term good partnerships have children. There's less truancy. There's less delinquency. There's less crime among the children. There's more poverty. So the bottom line is these are drugs that not all of them, but certainly the SSRIs are going to make you feel better. They're going to calm you down. That's good. 
but I would really hope that a lot of people who don't need them long-term get off them so that they can get onto something that's gonna make them a lot more healthy, which is a good partnership. And Helen, your story of the guy who went out, realized he ended up going off the pills, came back dozen, two dozen roses in his arms. That's a great story and it's a powerful one. But in that situation, he realized it after the relationship ended. So when right. someone's in the moment, in a relationship, what can someone do when they realize that whether it's the lack of intimacy or the lack of drive, what can someone do in the moment so they don't have to come back with two dozen or three dozen roses in their <laughs> arms and beg for forgiveness? I'm not a doctor, but all the letters I get are generally from the partner, not the person. The person is so engaged in who he is that he doesn't realize that this is drugs doing it to him or her. It's almost always the partner who, well, I got a letter a couple of weeks ago. It's from a man. He'd been married 11 years. He had two small children. They were very happily married, had sex all the time. She starts taking these pills. She walks in after about six months or maybe four months of the pills and says, I want a divorce. And he says, Dr. Fisher, I got it. It's got to be these pills. She's nothing like what she used to be. And the one thing that I say to him is, well, give them one of my academic articles so that they can read about what's happening to them and try and talk to their doctor. A lot of these doctors still are handing these things out like peanuts without really realizing. It's amazing how many people don't, well, I'm trying to get the world to realize that this is a basic brain, romantic love is a basic brain system and uh, it can be tampered with. But a lot of people in the medical community are not yet aware of that. They, they think that anger is a basic system. They think fear is a basic system, but they haven't really come to grips with the fact that, that romantic love is a system, that it can be tampered with, that it can be jeopardized when you take certain drugs. So unfortunately, we're still in a stay, very early stage where we've got to prove. So what I would end up saying, I mean, let's say it were happening to me. And I was going out with somebody who was taking an SSRI and they were just very numb, basically numb. I would say, can you possibly get off this and try a different sort of of, uh, antidepressant? There are antidepressants that drive up dopamine. And by the way, some of the newer SSRIs or SNRIs, they're also driving up norepinephrine, which will help counteract some of those effects and get some exercise and eat properly, get away from the sugar, all the kinds of things that you can do. But basically, they need to be aware of the fact that they are taking a drug that is affecting their marriage and family life. Helen, you mentioned happiness before and the pursuit of it and really the the relationship between happiness and being in a healthy, good relationship. As a society, it seems that we're always chasing the next best thing, the bigger house, the higher paying job, the better relationship. And social media and the ease in which we could access new people, and you mentioned that in the beginning, we're a click, we're a swipe, we're a wink, we're a like away. What has been the impact of technology in the evolution of the modern day relationship? Because I'm seeing it on the divorce side in terms of the Facebook divorce and people meeting other people. Again, people are on their couch, people are have their computers, their tablets, and they have access to so many people that they otherwise would not have access to. What are you saying? It's the biggest problem that the whole matching of the dating sites, and by the way, they all know it. 
the president of Match knows it, they all know it. The big problem is there's too many choices and the brain does not cope with that many choices. There's a wonderful book, The Art of Choosing by a girlfriend of mine. She was able to prove and people have proven since that there's a big brain region and it linked with the ability to simply choose. And the brain is able to cope with about five to nine choices. And after about nine choices, you choose nobody. So you're, the brain is inundated and you just go from one to the other, to the other, to the other, and you choose nobody. And so if you're going to use the internet, the one thing that I say, two things, but the first being after you've met nine people and either, and I mean meet, either meet them in person or meet them for video dating. It's important that you meet the person. But after you've met nine people who you could have any possible interest in, get off the dating site and get to know at least one of those people better. Because if you keep going on it, I mean, I hear, I see these people bragging, oh, I had 30 dates in, in 30 nights. I mean, I roll my eyes. I mean, come on, hey, <laughs> the amount of money you spent, I mean, really, you must be exhausted. But the bottom line is you're, you're, you're defeating yourself. So you really have to understand how the brain works. The second thing that I would say is think of reasons to say yes. There's this huge brain region linked with what I call, with what is called uh, negativity bias. We are built to remember the negative, which comes from millions of years. I mean, it was a, a million years ago, you're in a little hunting and gathering group. It's nice to know who your friends are, but if you forget who your enemies are, you can die. So the bottom line is we remember the negative. And a good example is you go into a party and everybody says, oh, hi, this and that. And then one person says, have you gained a little weight? What do you, you go home, that's all you remember. And no, so, it's true. Yeah. yeah. And so when you are first meeting somebody, you have so little information about them that you overweight what you see. Okay, he's, he's got brown shoes. I don't think so. Oh, man, she likes cats and I like dogs. Would never matter. Forget it. If they overlook the negative, think of reasons to say yes and get off the dating site after nine people. The bottom line is nothing wrong with this technology. The problem is, it's so new, we don't know how to use it. Well, that reminds me, I, I had a client, a woman, just got divorced in her mid to late 40s. And she said to me, Evan, I get a lot of first dates, but there's so many options and choices where if something isn't 100% perfect, there's not a second date. There's another option. And someone's looking for the next person and the next person. And it becomes a great way to get a lot of first dates but it's hard to get more into the second, third, and fourth date because the options are just, I mean, they're just so many. That's exactly where we're not built for all those options. So we get delirious and just become addicted and just keep on swiping, swiping, swiping. So you got to get, learn how to use it. If you're going to get on the technology, learn how to use it. It's like getting into a car and not knowing where the brakes are. You put the brake on. After you've met nine people, get off, spend some time, get to know some of those people better. And you might even tell her, that this is a problem and that if she liked a first date with somebody, she might even tell the guy, Helen and Evan were talking and I ended up realizing that maybe we should try a second date, get people to try a second date. Can monogamy still rule the day in this internet app technology driven dating world? 
Sure. I mean, people don't really understand that what that word monogamy means. Mono means one, and gammy means spouse. One spouse. That's all it means, uh, as opposed to several spouses. And it doesn't necessarily mean fidelity. It means a pair bond. We are driven to, to, to form pair bonds. I, I've been able to prove that we've evolved pretty obvious anyhow, that we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive, second is feelings of intense romantic love, and the third is feelings of attachment. So we all got them in the brain. They came from millions of years ago. But, you know, you can be madly in love with one person and deeply attached to another. I mean, happiness you got to make. You've got to make some decisions here. So, sure, I do think that uh, romantic love is a drive. I've proven that. It's way below the cortex where you do your thinking, way below the limbic regions that are associated with the emotions. It's a drive. Romantic love is a drive. Attachment is a drive. These are basic human drives. We will, we will be forming partnerships, married or not married, but forming partnerships until we stop being a species. So it'll happen. But I do think that we were, we're seeing a great deal of a series of partnerships, which, by the way, all we're doing is going back to the kind of relationships we had a million years ago. When you look in hunting and gathering societies, divorce is very high. Evan, you'd make a bundle on the grasslands of Africa a million years ago. And there were people like you, <laughs> too, I bet, trying to cope with this. But the bottom line is anthropologists believe that in hunting and gathering past, both men and women had between two and three long-term partnerships, a series of partnerships and children with each. Helen, when you look at open relationships and open marriages, what do you see in terms of the openness of a relationship and marriage and really the survival of the marriages we see in 2021? People are entering into relationships like that more and more, and perhaps it's less taboo than it once was several years ago. I think that's a good point, that it's simply less taboo. I mean, when you think back at the in the 19th uh, century, the Oneida community, for example, there were all kinds of things where, where people were supposed to just sleep around with everybody. And But now today we've got this whole polyamory. Poly meaning many, amory meaning partners. And there's sort of two part kinds of polyamory. There's the kind of partnerships where you're, you're a married couple, you're going to stay married, you're deeply attached, and you've chosen together to have romances on the side. And then there's others where uh, the second variety of polyamory is where you don't really have one stable long-term partnership. You've got somebody you really like, but you both sleep around with other people. I did a study of this with Match in my Singles in America study, and something like 68% of Americans, just like you say, are perfectly comfortable with the idea of it. But only about uh, 6% of people actually did it. And I've spoken to some of these people who are polyamorous, and basically what their magazines don't tell you is it's an awful lot of work because you are constantly talking about your feelings. We are a jealous animal. The human animal is a jealous animal that evolved with the evolution of pair bonding over 4 million years ago. We're not really built to share. And in fact, even in societies that are polygamous, where a man is allowed to have several wives, everybody's supposed to aspire to several wives, co-wives fight. They sometimes try to poison each other's children. It's not the most natural way of doing it. Now, there's some people who do it and they do it okay, but it doesn't tend to last. As a matter of fact, I was traveling through the highlands of New Guinea 
few years ago and I in a beat up old van. Oh my God, you could see the road. Well, it wasn't a road, it was a dirt road. I could stick my feet down the bottom of the van, sitting on an old tin can upside down. And I was talking with a guy who had three wives. And I said to him, I said, how many wives would you like to have? Long pause. And I think, I thought he'd say, I don't, I, mean, I thought he'd say five, 10, 20, I don't know. And he looked at me, he said, none. And the wow. bottom line is, it's a toothache. Sharing is a toothache. And these people who are polyamorous, what they're really, and I admire them for it, is they're being honest. Sure. They're being honest. Is it really different from having a, a husband or a wife and sneaking around on the side? No. They're having their romances on the side, but they're not being honest. These people are being honest about it. They're talking about their feelings, but it's work. And I think every generation will try it. And I don't think it will ever be a central aspect of humanity. Ellen, you mentioned work and relationships, and there's so much work that goes into it, whether it's dating online, looking for love in so many different ways. Helen, this was absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Tell everybody where they could listen to your talks, buy the books, learn more about your work and the studies and everything that you're doing. Okay, well, thank you. Well, my most recent book is Anatomy of Love, 2016. I've written six books. You could go to my website, HelenFisher.com, which lists everything and all of my academic articles, too, and all my personality stuff. Or you could go to Anatomy, The Anatomy of Love website, which I did with my brain scanning partner, Lucy Brown. That tells you even more. And I, I'm apparently all over the Internet. I guess I've done three TED Talks and oh, a whole lot of things. I think you can find me pretty. And there's somebody else whose name is Helen Fisher, who's a musician. I haven't looked her up, but maybe you'll get an even better deal. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, those TED Talks were absolutely brilliant. And I encourage everybody who's listening to take a listen and watch those. They were absolutely fantastic. Dr. Fisher, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. And same, Evan. Thank you. What a show. Episode number 26 in the books. Dr. Helen Fisher. Wow. Was she terrific or what? Dave, we have to have her back on. David Yates, Billy Joel, Journey, <laughs> Adele, and Dr. Fisher in one show. Does it get any better than this? Blockbuster. Complete blockbuster smash. Thanks, Evan. You can find this episode in the complete archive of episodes along with my blog post featuring our guest on my website, shineanddivorce.com. Keep the emails and comments coming in. Evan at shineanddivorce.com. To all the loyal listeners, thank you. You can subscribe, follow, and find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and wherever else you listen to your podcast. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.